Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Quinn Mosier, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Well, thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. We continue our series in the Gospel of John by looking at the beginning of the Cana Cycle. Today, Dr. Kostenberger will walk us through the first of Jesus' signs, the turning water into wine, and the temple cleansing in Jerusalem. So listen in now to part four of our series on John's Gospel, New Wine and a New Temple. Let's now look at the beginning of the Cana cycle, the wedding at Cana, Jesus' first of seven signs in the first half of his gospel, the so-called Book of Signs. In chapter 1, following the prologue, John began to narrate, in effect, Jesus' first week of ministry. The narrative breaks down neatly into several days, whereby each day is introduced by the phrase, the next day. See John 1, 29. Then again, the next day, John 1, 35. Then again, the next day, John 1, 43. So here we are. Uh, in John 2.1, on the third day. On one level, this completes the first week of Jesus' ministry. On another level, John may see here a parallel with creation week as part of the new creation motif in John's gospel. I have a whole chapter on that in my Joanne on Theology. Also, John may be hinting at Jesus' resurrection, which happened to take place on the third day. He mentions that in John 2, verses 19 and 20, the few verses down. Then, John mentions a wedding that took place at Cana in Galilee. The corresponding bookend to this is 446, on the back end of the Cana cycle, which says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Fourth Evangelist does such a great job in, in helping us as readers understand where we are in the narrative. So notice John himself draws the reader's attention to the fact that Jesus had come full circle, as it were, and that he has returned to where he started his ministry, the little Galilean village of Cana. And then in 454... The Cana cycle closes with the reference that this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea into Galilee. Many take this to mean that there are no intervening signs between the turning of water into wine in chapter 2 and the healing of the centurion son in chapter 4, but I believe that 454 refers only to signs in Cana, and then in uh, John 2.23 and John 3.2, you'll find additional references to Jesus' signs performed in Jerusalem. And I believe that the the cleansing of the temple is in fact such a messianic sign. If so, there are actually three signs narrated in the Cana cycle, the two bookends being signs in Cana plus an intervening sign in Jerusalem. If you're interested in this, written an article, The Seventh Sign in John's Gospel, where I defend this view in some detail. But back to chapter 2. Notice that in the account of the Cana wedding, the only named character is Jesus. In this way, 
Jesus is identified as the main character. Jesus' mother, his disciples, the groom and bride, the master of the banquet, and the servants all remain unnamed. The scene becomes the occasion at which a facet of Jesus' messianic mission is revealed, namely that he is the bringer of great eschatological joy, which is symbolized by the abundance of wine, as in many Old Testament prophetic passages. And yet, his time has not yet come, verse 4. This Jesus' mother fails to understand, which is why Jesus' reply to her request is rather firm. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. As far as I know, this is the only ancient literary evidence we have for a man calling his mother woman. I know if my son called Marnie woman, I'd be concerned. Um, interestingly, Jesus' mother is undaunted, though, and simply tells the servants, do whatever he tells you, which, very interesting, uh, when you compare that with Genesis 41.55, it's almost certainly an echo of Pharaoh's words regarding Joseph. Where he tells people, do whatever he tells you. If so, John may want, to, want us uh, to draw a salvation historical connection between Joseph's help in times of famine and Jesus' help in times of spiritual famine in Israel. In this way, it's almost as if running out of wine serves as a sort of parable for the spiritual barrenness of Judaism along with the reference to the six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification in verse 6. After this, Jesus goes about his task discreetly, so as not to disturb the wedding or steal the spotlight, and more importantly, so as not to reveal his messianic identity before his time. At the end of his account, John makes clear that Jesus' primary purpose was to reveal himself as the Messiah to his inner circle of disciples. John 2.11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This, as I mentioned earlier, echoes the statement in the prologue that John and his fellow apostles perceived Jesus' glory. 114. I said earlier that John wasn't so much concerned with the powerful works of Jesus, the dunamis, as he was concerned with the messianic signs, the semea of Jesus. Notice how he doesn't even record the actual miracle. He refers to the master of the feast tasting, quote, the, wa the water now become wine in verse 9, almost in passing. In this way, John gets the ball rolling as far as Jesus' signs is concerned. In fact, the first of Jesus' signs is literally in the Greek, the head sign, arche, the same word used in the phrase in the beginning in the first verse of the gospel. So then this is the beginning of the perfect sevenfold revelation of Jesus' messianic signs. So moving right along, John then weds the first signing Galilee, pun intended, with the temple cleansing in Jerusalem at the occasion of the Jewish Passover. Again, Jesus acts the part of the Messiah. He drives out the merchants from the temple area with messianic authority because he's zealous for the worship of God. The backstory here 
is that the temple courts outside the actual temple building were the place where Gentiles could worship, but this was made impossible by the presence of merchants who had a currency exchange business going as well as selling sacrificial animals. So Gentile worship was supplanted by greedy profiteering and religious hucksterism. Like David, when facing Goliath, Jesus shows holy zeal and righteous indignation when he says, take those things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jeremiah is even stronger, a den of robbers. It's quoted in some of the synoptic gospels. Similarly, Jesus says in Luke's gospel that his parents should have known he would be in his father's house, even as a 12-year-old. At this display of spiritual zeal for the worship of God and the sacredness of a temple, the Jewish authorities who were in charge of the temple challenged Jesus and asked for a sign of his authority. Verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I believe this is an example of fine Johannine irony where John uses the word sign with a double meaning. On the one hand, sign simply means proof of Jesus' authority. On the other hand, it means messianic signs of Jesus, like the one he's just performed at the Cana wedding. You can see this in Jesus' response. Rather than offer them another sign, of course, he never would just respond to, to uh, this kind of demanding spirit that the Jewish authority displayed. So rather than offer another sign, he proceeds to explain the significance of what he's just done, clearing the temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The double meaning related to the word temple here sets up another misunderstanding. Jesus knew his opponents would think that by this temple, he was referring to the literal temple, while he was in fact speaking about the quote-unquote temple of his body, which is, of course, exactly the point the evangelist himself makes in verse 21. Sure enough, the Jewish authorities take the bait when they respond, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? No answer on Jesus' part is recorded, by the way, nor does there need to be. The reader understands that Jesus has just explained that the temple clearing was a sign of Jesus' messianic authority, which symbolized the resurrection of his body after three days in the grave. Incidentally, the reference to a 46-year period of building the temple, as most translations render it, is probably mistaken. Um, we know from historical sources that the actual restoration of the temple building, Greek word is naos, was accomplished in 17 BC during the reign of Herod the Great. The restoration of the remaining temple area, Greek hieron, However, it was not completed, ironically, until shortly before the temple was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 AD. And I should say here, the word that's used is naos, the temple building, not here on the temple area. So I believe what the Jewish leaders here are referring to is not the duration of 46 years of renovating the temple or temple area, but the point in time, 46 years ago, at which the renovation of the temple building had already been completed. First of all, like I mentioned, the word for temple is naos, which refers to the building, 
not the temple area, which would be here on. Also, 46 years in the Greek is in the dative, not the accusative. The dative, when it comes to time, usually denotes a point in time, not duration of time, should be accusative. So the phrase is better understood as a point of time 46 years ago, rather than as indicating a 46-year-long period of restoring the temple. And finally, the tense form for building the temple, uh, oikodomeo, is aorist, which normally refers globally to an act being performed. The progressive nature of an action is typically conveyed by the present or imperfect tense form, neither of which is used. This, by the way, helps us determine the year in which Jesus began his ministry. With the temple's renovation having been completed in 17 BC, if you add the 46 years, you arrive at 29 AD, which yields the date of AD 33 for Jesus' crucifixion, assuming a three and a half year ministry. So I would suggest giving the sense of verse 20 as something like this. The renovation of the temple building was completed 46 years ago, and you will raise it up in three days? If so, the contrast is between the long time that has passed since the renovation of the temple building was already completed and the incredibly short time in which Jesus is proposing to rebuild a destroyed temple, a mere three days. What is even more important theologically is that Jesus here presents his own crucified and resurrected body as the replacement of the Jewish temple. That is really earth-shattering. Entire monographs have been written on that exact replacement theme. It's especially significant in light of the fact that when John writes his gospel, almost certainly after the destruction of the physical temple in the year 70 AD, he knows that the temple had already been destroyed. So what John is suggesting here is that those Jews and any others who are mourning the loss of a temple as a place for worship need no longer mourn. They can and should worship the risen Jesus instead. He's providing an apologetic, um, especially to Jews who are mourning the temple. Jesus was the new temple, replacement of the physical temple. You see this theme resurface in Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman where Jesus says that true worshipers worship God in spirit and truth, regardless of the sanctuary's physical location, whether Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, John 4, 24. If you're interested in this, I've written an article in which I relate the composition of John's gospel to the destruction of a temple, and I argue that John's gospel was written, at least in part, to commend faith in Jesus in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple. And by the way, there's some other fascinating documents like uh, uh, 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch written uh, for a very similar purpose. With this, we've arrived at the end of my second lecture. We've explored the opening salvos of the Cana cycle, the first sign at the wedding at Cana, and the second sign at the Jerusalem Passover. I should add, just hinted at that briefly, that John's concept of sign is broader than our concept of miracle. So even though the temple cleansing is not, technically speaking, miraculous, in that it doesn't show Jesus overcoming any natural laws, I believe it still qualifies as a Johannine sign because John's concept of sign encompasses both the miraculous and the prophetic. 
I've shown this in my article on Joanna and Signs I mentioned earlier, where I survey the Old Testament concept of sign. Just look at a concordance of a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Look up the word semeon and study all of those references. So I've done. And what you find is there are two types of semea in the Old Testament. There are the signs and wonders Moses performed at the Exodus, which are miraculous. And then, second, the term semeon is applied in the Old Testament to prophetic symbolism, such as when the prophet Isaiah walks around stripped down to his undergarments for three years to signify the upcoming Babylonian exile. It's called a sign because he prophetically signified and predicted, visualized that just like he was stripped down to his undergarments, Israel would be stripped down spiritually when they would be taken uh, to exile in Babylon. Isaiah chapter 20, verse 3. Now, while there's nothing intrinsically miraculous about the sight of a near-naked prophet, the Septuagint, as I mentioned, still calls this a semeon because Isaiah's act prophetically visualizes God's future judgment on his people. Now, I believe this is exactly the sense in which John here uses the word semeon, sign, with regard to Jesus' cleansing of a temple. Jesus acts here prophetically, and he provides a visual demonstration by overthrowing the tables of the money changers and driving out the merchants of the coming judgment of God on the people of Israel. The physical temple would be destroyed because God condemned Israel's corrupt worship. Instead, people must repent and believe in Jesus, the temple's replacement, who would rise from the dead after three days in order to receive eternal life. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations Podcast.